You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast, Understanding Our Inner Critics, The Power of Insight and Compassion. Before we launch into this topic for today, which I'm really excited about because inner criticism has been a presence throughout my life and the lives of many clients with whom I've worked, I want to take a minute to announce that I have just launched a one-on-one holistic coaching program that helps you transform stress and self-doubt and inner criticism, disconnection from a sense of meaning and purpose and who you truly are, and live with more meaning and purpose and alignment with your core values, with more confidence and empowerment and resilience, even in the midst of life stressors. And so given the relevance of that program to our topic for today, wanted to lift it up in case you weren't aware of it and encourage you to Check it out on the website and share it with others with whom you think might benefit. And also my free four-part video series, The Science and Soul of Building Resilience, does have a focus on compassion and self-compassion and as one of the key pillars of resilience that can help us live lives of fulfillment and alignment and empowerment. And so I encourage you to also check out that series if you haven't already. And that link will also be in the episode notes for today. So for today, we will be talking about ways in which we can more deeply understand how criticism shows up in ourselves, in our lives. And I think that that understanding really begins with examining our relationship to self-criticism and the glaring and subtle ways in which it can emerge because sometimes we become so habituated to self-criticism that we don't even recognize it as such. And then from this foundation of understanding and insight, we can then begin to enhance or change or shift our ability to respond to criticism inner criticism with more self-compassion. So to summarize for today, we'll begin by talking about ways in which we can understand the roots of self-criticism. So how self-criticism develops in the first place. And we'll consider the multitude of influences within each of us that can both cultivate self-criticism and also perpetuate it. We'll then explore our relationship to criticism through a bit of a self 
assessment, a reflection exercise that can be done in written format or as more of a meditative or mindfulness exercise. We'll also define what self-compassion is because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about self-compassion. So we'll define more clearly what self-compassion is and I'll share both some research findings as well as practical tips regarding the ways in which self-compassion can be a useful antidote to self-criticism. And we'll focus on a few different approaches for approaching self-criticism with more compassion. And finally, we'll end with a brief self-compassion practice that I invite you to integrate into your life in a regular way. And just a note that this episode will be focusing more on the understanding of inner criticism, approaching inner criticism with compassion, and translating insight into action. And the next episode that I'll release, episode 23, will outline more specific strategies for approaching inner criticism. So if this episode is intriguing to you and you're left wanting more, I am also offering that follow-up episode as well with more specific tools and strategies from a variety of different wisdom traditions. So each of these episodes can stand on their own, but also can be useful to listen to together. So before we launch into some of the roots of self-criticism and how self-criticism emerges and develops, I want to share a quote with you from the poet Rumi. And Rumi states, Your path is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all of the barriers within yourself you have built against it. Your path is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all of the barriers within yourself you have built against it. I absolutely love this quote because In my mind, it exemplifies how in order to feel love, both self-love from within ourselves and love from other people, to take that in, to internalize it, to process it, to feel it, we first need to understand the barriers within ourselves that block us from receiving that love, from noticing that love, from really allowing it to register. And I think self-criticism And in ways and the ways in which we have come to believe the criticism of others is one barrier to feeling love. So I think the practice of counteracting self-criticism is important in and of itself, but I also think it's a really powerful practice because self-criticism blocks our access to love, loving ourselves and truly receiving and internalizing the love from other people. Another point I want to make is that our self-critical side doesn't necessarily go away the more that we become aware of it, the more tools and strategies we use to counteract it. What changes is that we're able to make more room for it in a way that affects us less. And you may have heard this metaphor before, but it's almost like if you have a glass of water, and you put a tablespoon of salt in that glass of water, the water is going to taste salty. But if you put that same tablespoon of salt in a bucket of water or a kiddie pool of water, it probably won't change the taste of that water 
to the same degree. So to carry through this metaphor to self-criticism, our self-critical side is like that tablespoon of salt. What changes with practice is that we surround that self-criticism with greater kindness and awareness or we surround that tablespoon of salt with a larger body of water and when that salt has a larger body of water to swim in it makes the taste less perceptible and potent it makes the impact of the self-criticism less debilitating and it keeps us less stuck so in considering getting to know our self-criticism more I or more better, more deeply, I think it's important to consider how self-criticism develops in the first place. And one is societal messages. So those of you who know me have heard me speak before about sociocultural messages that infiltrate our psyche that we internalize sometimes consciously with knowing that we are, and sometimes unconsciously. So in the United States and many other cultures, we live in a comparative culture. We are pitted against each other. There is an emphasis on competition, on winning, on being the quote-unquote best, which creates a lot of striving, a lot of efforting, a lot of focus on product over process, a lot of emphasis on perfectionism, which all of this taken together, the comparative nature of the culture, the competition, the striving, the perfectionism, the product over process, that can create a bit of a scarcity mindset, a sense that there isn't enough to go around. Also, it can create a mindset that our value, our worth is based on what we can accomplish and what we can accomplish or the value of of our accomplishments is also judged by society. And so certain forms of success may be praised with words, with money, with popularity more than others. And so we start to get a sense of what kinds of successes, what kinds of activities are going to lead to feeling love and praise and validation from other people are going to lead to us being liked by other people. And that can lead to a lot of self-criticism if those activities and accomplishments don't actually resonate with us. We don't find a sense of fulfillment or enjoyment in those kinds of activities or if that doesn't feel like us. Yes, we can do those things. We can succeed in those ways. But at the end of the day, that's not what gives our life a sense of vitality and zest and meaning and purpose. And so a lot of these messages can really infiltrate in a way that breeds self-criticism. So when we're not accomplishing, when we're not producing at the rate that society says that we should, when we end up doing something imperfectly, which is pretty much all the time because perfectionism is an illusion. We cannot be perfect because we are inherently imperfect. We feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel self-criticism. And so we beat ourselves up. There is also this emphasis on 
prioritizing many aspects of our being that we can't change. So our society often sends us messages about what racial and ethnic backgrounds are more preferable or ideal or get more attention, how we can, how we need to look in terms of our eye shape, our skin color, our body shape, our weight, our hair, the type of hair, amount of hair, our intellect, our athleticism. All of these ideals and standards and expectations that our culture and our society sets for us leave room for self-criticism when we feel like we're not measuring up. Of course, we could spend this entire episode talking about the ideals and expectations in our culture and society that contribute to self-criticism or create a really ripe breeding ground for self-criticism. But I wanted to just lift up a few examples here and now to get you thinking about what are some of the ways in which you have been shaped by our culture and what are some of your pain points? What are your tender spots? What are some of your tendencies when it comes to self-criticism that have been created by the culture that we all swim in? I think another important point to keep in mind when it comes to societal messages is how we often have a false sense of control. So oftentimes when we criticize ourselves, it helps us maintain this illusion of control. Many of us as human beings have a desire to control. We often get the message that control of our environment and life is possible. And of course, to some extent it is, and to some extent it isn't. There are many things that happen in life that are completely outside of our control, regardless of how much we might want them to be different or work for them to be different. So we do get this message then that when something isn't going going well in our lives, it's our fault and we just need to do better and try harder that we can prevent bad things from happening to us when that simply isn't true. So that's another example of a message that we often internalize that leads us to criticize ourselves. And even though it can be painful and harmful, it can also help us feel a sense of control. Another important message that we often internalize is that self-criticism is a motivator. That when we criticize ourselves or other people, that can help them accomplish their goals or our goals. And so we've often used that self-criticism as a mobilizing force so that nagging nagging inner voice that says you're not good enough you need to work harder you need to do more of this you need to do less of that in in many ways that voice may have good intentions even if the actual speech or words of that voice is harmful because it's trying to get us to work towards something we care about But the flip side is that self-criticism often isn't really all that effective of a motivator for change because even if it mobilizes us to act, we're doing so from a place of self-criticism rather than compassion. So if I'm beating myself up over a mistake that I made, that might prompt me to make a repair, to commit to doing something differently the next time, to make a change in my life. Yet if I am approaching that change in my life with a very harsh inner critic, that is going to have a very different outcome than if I can approach that life change with a more compassionate stance, with a, an appreciation of both a 
accountability and understanding. So holding myself accountable for my actions in a way that can help me repair and do something differently the next time with a compassionate understanding for why I might have engaged in that behavior in the first place. We also get messages from our peers, our friends, our romantic partners. So it's not just society at large. We internalize the values and the statements of other people. And that leads us to criticize, especially if we get the sense implicitly based on someone's body language or tone of voice that they don't approve of something that we're doing. We can internalize that as criticism and also explicitly often people criticize us or give us unsolicited advice or judge our decisions or speak in the language of shoulds or shouldn'ts and so that has an impact on self-criticism. Of course our families of origin affect our tendencies toward self-criticism, our relationships to caregivers, siblings, extended families. And there is some research that does show that people who have more positive family interactions early in life tend to have higher tendencies towards self-compassion. So there is a very direct link between our early experiences and the extent to which we may or may not have cultivated this skill of self-compassion, which can be a helpful antidote to self-criticism. Of course, certain variables related to identity, like gender role orientation, our age, our religious beliefs, our cultural beliefs can also affect self-criticism and self-compassion. And so as, as one example, female identified people tend to be less compassionate than male identified people. And again, that's a broad generalization, but that is a finding that has emerged from some of the research. And so there are certain ways in which our identities can shape our tendencies toward self-criticism. We also know that trauma affects self-criticism. Research shows that trauma tends to reduce our ability to be self-compassionate. Again, perhaps because of the ways in which we've internalized explicit and implicit messages from the person who has perpetrated that trauma against us. They may have criticized us or been disparaging in the context of trauma and we also have may have made sense of the trauma in a way that really blames ourselves and criticizes ourselves, even though the trauma and its occurrence may have had absolutely nothing to do with us. And we do talk a little bit more about the impact of trauma on self-blame and self-criticism in the prior episode on betrayal trauma and DARVO. So I, I do think it's important to also acknowledge there is some research that shows that we can have self-compassion even if we have low self-esteem. So I think many of us have this false assumption that unless we have high self-worth, high self-esteem, high self-confidence, it's impossible to be self-compassionate or it's difficult to be self-compassionate. And that's simply not true. So I find this very hope-instilling and inspiring that even if you struggle with low self-worth, 
you can still have compassion. Even if you struggle with really harsh inner criticism, you can still cultivate self-compassion in your life. Self-compassion and inner criticism can coexist simultaneously. Self-compassion and low self-esteem can coexist simultaneously. So it's not that you need to wait to develop self-compassion. You can still work towards building self-compassion and counterbalancing inner criticism even if you struggle in these other domains of your life. So I hope that information is a helpful introduction to considering for yourself what are some of the influences in my life that have contributed not only to my tendencies towards self-criticism, but the circumstances in which I tend to notice self-criticism emerge. So thinking about some of these sociocultural messages and ideals and expectations and standards, thinking about messages we've received from peers and friends and romantic partners and families of origin, thinking about religion, spirituality, gender role orientation, age, cultural beliefs, and how that may play a role, as well as early life experiences, adulthood life experiences, whether it is trauma or other life stressors. So I'd like to transition now into a bit of a self-assessment so that we can take a bit of an inventory to understand how self-criticism functions or operates for you in this phase of your life right now. And so this may have emerged over time. This may be very different than how it was five days ago, five months ago, five years ago. But I do think it does help to to take this inventory and to get a sense of how these patterns towards self-criticism show up in your own life because that awareness is really powerful. The more aware you can be to the subtle nuances of self-criticism in your life, the more equipped you will be to proactively respond to self-criticism in a way that allows it to not dictate your life and to keep you stuck. So one option is to go through this inventory, this self-assessment as a bit of a mindfulness practice. So you could choose to close your eyes or have a soft downward gaze and simply listen to these questions, let them watch over you, see what images, memories, feelings, thoughts, and body sensations come to mind and trust that process. And perhaps at the end, you could write out some thoughts, journal a bit. That's one option. Another option is to write out responses as we go. And so there really is no right or wrong here. You could also revisit these questions at another point in time if you're maybe in the car right now or not in a place to really fully engage. So I want you to feel as though you can personalize this this self-assessment practice. So I'll ask these questions and pause in between each one just to give you a little bit of time to reflect. I do think before we go through these questions though, it is helpful to take a minute to center because we're really trying to approach this process from a more grounded, centered place so that we can cut through our 
illusions, our narratives, our stories about ourselves. So oftentimes we create a certain narrative about who we are. I'm not critical at all. I'm super critical. This is so hard for me. And sometimes there are kernels of truth to those narratives and sometimes they're there aren't kernels of truth or they're less true than we think. And so we're more able to cut through those illusions and narratives and stories when we can approach this process with a more softened sense of perception, more clarity, more balance. And so I invite you to enter that sense of groundedness in whatever way works for you. So you could decide to do some gentle stretching and move around a bit. You could take a minute to press pause and have some moments of quietude and stillness. You could look around to really orient to what's around you and your environment, really taking in what's around you all 360 degrees with your senses. So what you see, what you smell, what you hear, anything you taste. And anything you can touch, so feeling your sit bones on whatever is supporting you or your feet on the floor, maybe even beneath you if you're cross-legged. You could even reach out and touch various objects around you to really arrive, to really bring full presence. You could also gently observe your breath by placing a hand on the belly or the chest or even a finger on your upper lip, lip below your nostrils really feeling the rhythm, excuse me, and and pace of your breath. You could even experiment with deepening your breath. Really smoothing out and lengthening the inhales and exhales. So anything that helps you arrive. And so once you feel ready, I'll invite you to consider this first question. What is your current relationship to criticism? Do you consider yourself highly critical or harsh with yourself? Where would you fall on this spectrum? So if we had a scale of 0 to 100, 0 being no self-criticism ever to 100 self-critical multiple times a day, every day, Where do you fall on the spectrum? In what areas of your life do you tend to judge or criticize yourself? Is it your appearance? Your work or vocation or professional identity? Your parenting? Your sex life? your relationships, your self-worth, your intelligence, how well-liked you are. When you make mistakes, what emotions tend to arise? Anger, Shame, fear. And what about 
for others. When other people in your life make mistakes, how do you respond? Is it with a similar emotional pattern or a different one? And think back to the last time you made a mistake or you perceived yourself as having made a mistake. What were some of the thoughts that ran around in your head? What type of language did you use? What was your inner talk? What was the tone of voice of that inner talk? Was there a gentleness? Was there a harshness? What level of understanding did you bring to that inner dialogue? Did you call yourself names? Did you globalize or generalize from this mistake? Did it seem like a referendum on your self-worth or your innate capabilities or capacities? And if you shared that mistake with other people, what did that talk look like? What verbiage did you use? What tone of voice? Did you leave out certain details? Did you embellish? What was that process like? When you make mistakes or do something that feels like a misstep or something that you're not proud of, do you tend to catastrophize? So what I mean by that is, do you tend to assume the worst case scenario is going to happen next? Or does your mind cycle through all sorts of what ifs about what could happen next? Losing relationships, losing your job, people not liking you. Do you intend to engage in black and white thinking? So rather than seeing multiple truths simultaneously, do you tend to judge what happened as good or bad or horrible without seeing kernels of truth that may be less black and white. So I'm dumb, I'm unlovable, I'm not good at this, as opposed to something like, wow, I made a mistake and wish I had done better and I know that if I keep practicing, I'll probably improve. So how rigid is your thinking when you make mistakes? How do you tend to feel when you criticize yourself? Is there an aspect of self-criticism that gives you a sense of power and control? Does it lead you to feel helpless or shame in a way that results in avoidance or withdrawal from relationships or checking out or dissociating from your life? So what is the emotional impact of self-criticism? And what are some of the short-term consequences? 
in terms of your behaviors, your reactions, how you interact with other people, how you treat yourself. And as you reflect on the trajectory of your life and various experiences of self-criticism, what have been some of the long-term costs? Have you foregone certain opportunities, not taken certain risks? Has it really affected your sense of self-confidence and self-worth? You could also consider the impact on motivation. And so again, it can be helpful to call to mind a recent example of self-criticism to really ground this in your current reality of something very recent that happened to bring these questions to life a bit more. So when you were self-critical, did it contribute to you being more likely to approach and persevere and continue on? Or did it contribute more to avoidance and withdrawal and giving it up and hopelessness? How did it impact your effectiveness? How skillful were you? How able were you to act in accordance with your values and your goals? How did it affect your ability to be present to your life fully in mind, body, and spirit? So sometimes we can be present in body, but we're distracted Our mind is elsewhere or our heart's not in it. So how does self-criticism affect your ability to be present in this recent example that you're calling to mind? What about your enjoyment of life? When you are in the midst of self-criticism, are you able to still access joy and fulfillment, vitality? Are you thriving? How does this recent experience affect your current self-esteem? And how does it affect your interactions with others? What might you do or not do differently if that self-criticism were less powerful? And consider who might you be? without this level or frequency of self-criticism. So if you can imagine a circumstance in which you didn't deal with self-criticism as regularly as you do, again, with the recognition that none of us can entirely get rid of self-criticism, it's more about noticing it and making space for it, but to imagine for a minute that you didn't have self-criticism, how would you feel, think, and act differently? Who might you be? And as you consider that possibility, what emotions come up for you? Do you feel inspired? Is there a sense of hope? Where do you feel more of a sense of dread or anxiety? Sometimes self-criticism can prevent us from the anxiety associated with taking risks. And sometimes that fear or other emotions can keep us stuck in self-criticism. It can convince us that it's not worth trying. It's not worth changing. We need to accept the status quo. 
So sometimes for many of us, thinking about who we would be without self-criticism doesn't feel liberating. It feels scary. So even though not taking risks may be more painful and less fulfilling, it also may be less anxiety provoking. So it can feel safer and more known and comfortable. How do you respond to criticism from other people? Do you take it as 100% true immediately? Do you feel as though you are able to wisely evaluate the credibility of this criticism? To question the source of the criticism? To sort through the criticism in a way that allows you to take what you want that feels true for you and leave the rest? Is it hard for you to recover from criticism? Does it dominate you? Do you go to great lengths to avoid criticism by not being vulnerable, by not taking risks, by people-pleasing, by trying to be well-liked, even at a great cost to yourself? Sometimes our ability to make space for self-criticism in our lives and responding to self-criticism with more compassion can help increase our ability to tolerate criticism from others in a more wise and grounded way. And sometimes pushing away criticism entirely from other people and not sitting with it and being curious about it and questioning whether there is a kernel of truth that is values aligned for us can actually foster our attachment to this illusion of perfectionism. It can also distance us from other people, create disconnection and a barrier to intimacy and can also move us away from this growth mindset that compassionate, criticism that is constructive can actually help us grow and change and sometimes from trusted loving sources that can hold up that mirror to us and help us more clearly see us for who we are in that moment can be really powerful so being able to tolerate criticism again assuming that it's coming from a loving source in a compassionate and true way can be an important life practice. And how do you treat yourself in the midst of stress and life life challenges? Do you tend to ignore stress? Do you tend to push through, white knuckle through at all costs? Do you overfill your schedule when there is a life stressor present? This is a subtle way in which criticism can manifest how we treat ourselves in times of stress and challenge. Do you have a tendency towards slowing down, nurturing yourself, treating yourself with encouragement and care and comfort? Is there ever a tendency to overindulge in that comfort and nurturance in a way that deprives you of the opportunity to take accountability? Do you tend to focus more on on problem solving? rather than acknowledging and feeling your emotions in times of stress and life challenges. 
because life stressors and challenges are oftentimes where self-criticism can show up, I think it's also important to consider are you able to maintain connections with other people in the midst of life difficulties? Are you t- do you tend to feel alone and isolated like other people would have it easier, wouldn't understand, aren't attuned to your suffering, can't help? How connected do you remain in the midst of difficulty? And in the midst of difficulty, are you able to maintain a sense of balance? For example, do you have a tendency toward under-registering or over-registering the impact of those challenges? So making a bigger deal than is needed from what is happening, feeling as though your reaction is not quite proportionate to what's happening, or do you minimize, do you downplay what's happening? And consider what have been the sources of criticism in your life. So building off of our earlier conversation, society, peer groups, family, friends, teachers, romantic partners, past traumas and stressors. And consider how you know when criticism shows up. What does this look like for you? Does it show up as a voice, a body posture, a sensation? And many of us have actually more than one inner critical voice. So Sebene Selassie calls it an inner committee. And this inner critic committee can come both from our own direct life experiences as well as indirect life experiences. In other words, we can inherit the inner critics of our caregivers, our parents, our family members, our ancestors. Which is to say, the ways in which they were criticized can then be passed on to us in some sort of way either in terms of what they model in terms of their own self-critical tendencies or how they demonstrate criticism towards us in both intense or subtle ways. Maybe they speak it aloud, maybe they don't, but we still pick up on their disappointment in us, their criticism or judgment of us. And one way in which this can play out, which I've learned through Sebene's work, is through this philosophy of indigenous focusing or IFOT, where inner critics can be considered the wise voices of our ancestors. Many of our ancestors endured domination or oppression by creating ways of being that protected them and ensured survival. So they didn't speak up, they didn't make eye contact, they tried not to cause problems, they were reticent to trust other people because these behaviors decreased the likelihood of being targeted with further oppression and violence. And this could also play out with something like emotional, physical, or sexual trauma. So we learn that if we do or don't something, don't do something, do or don't do something, we may be less likely to be targeted or the intensity of the trauma won't be as bad. And the reason that I bring this point up now in this process of your self-inquiry is that we can let go of something that no longer serves us, but we first need to honor what it is. We can honor 
why something is present, we can honor the protective functions that self-criticism has served in our lives and the lives of our ancestors without buying into their messages. And this process of honoring can help us get used to these self-criticisms. So rather than pushing them away, we can notice they're present without letting them dictate our behavior. And we can let them be in our lives in a way that helps us more clearly discern what are some of the aspects of self-criticism that are worth listening to and which are the aspects that we need to let go of. So I think this is an important segue and transition into talking a bit more about self-compassion as an antidote to self-criticism because Part of having a self-compassionate stance towards self-criticism involves understanding its roots, understanding how it emerged, why it's here, how it gets perpetuated, as well as the functions that it serves. So self-compassion is a term that has been really heavily studied by psychologists Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, and they have developed from their research a mindfulness-based self-compassion program. They've written a number of books, have a number of different resources, and so if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to go to their website, which is selfcompassion.org. Before we talk about how to define self-compassion, I think it's important to begin with the definition of compassion. So compassion has two Latin roots. So passion is to suffer and calm is with. So essentially compassion means to suffer with. And self-compassion would be turning the ability to suffer with inward. So compassion is about being willing to not only be with someone else's suffering in a way that we can fully feel and appreciate our interconnectedness as human beings, but also an allowance of being affected by our caring concern, so much so that we experience a desire to help. So if we turn that inward, Kristen Neff refers this refers to self-compassion as a clear seeing of our own suffering, a caring response to our own suffering that includes the desire to help ourselves and recognize that suffering is part of the human condition. And when I use the word suffering, I'm really referring to any moment of pain or discomfort, however big, however small. And Kristen Neff talks about how compassion isn't something we need to earn. It is our birthright. It is something we are entitled to by virtue of being human. All human beings want to be happy rather than to suffer. And we all have an inherent intrinsic value and are deserving of not suffering. So compassion is deserved both when we have caused our own suffering or are responsible for our own suffering through our mistakes and failures, as well as when we are in circumstances through no fault of our own. So it's not as though we only deserve compassion or are entitled to compassion from other people and ourselves when we have found ourselves in circumstances that aren't our fault. Compassion and self-compassion are relevant even when we are responsible for some of the suffering in our lives. And 
Importantly, because I think this is a bit of a misconception, compassion and self-compassion involves both soothing qualities as well as more action-oriented qualities. So Kristen Neff refers to this as the yin and yang of self-compassion. So the yin of self-compassion is being with ourselves in a way that is accepting and soothing and understanding and that really validates our pain and suffering as legitimate and making sense. The yang of self-compassion is taking action to then alleviate our suffering. It is protective. It is a form of providing for ourselves, of motivating ourselves when needed. And there's also an important distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion. So both self-esteem and self-compassion are positive ways of relating to the self. But self-esteem is more of an evaluation of our worth that is typically conditional on our success. Whereas self-compassion is unconditional. It's an unconditional self-acceptance and inner kindness that we bring to the table even and especially in moments of failure. And Dr. Neff and Christopher Germer's research shows that When we break self-compassion down and really try to define what it is, what it involves, there are three main components. And I think this is really helpful because self-compassion is a term that has become quite popularized that people use, but without knowing exactly what self-compassion means, it's hard to know how to cultivate it. So the first is an attitude of self-kindness, an action of self-kindness rather than self-judgment. The second part of self-compassion is a stance in which we can recognize our shared humanity, what unites us as humans, rather than a state of isolation. And the third is mindfulness, being aware and present and attuned to the reality of what is, rather than over-identifying. So for example, if I am in a moment of self-criticism, being aware that that hurts, being aware of what self-critical thoughts I'm thinking, rather than being so fused with that self-criticism and those thoughts, so identified with those thoughts that I take those thoughts as truth, that I think that those thoughts truly define who I am as opposed to being thoughts and reactions to a difficult situation. So I'll go through a a bit of each of these in more detail. So self-kindness is not being critical and judgmental, but it's so much more than that. It's an active process. Again, this is the yang side of self-kindness. It's about opening your heart to yourself in the same way that you would to a loved one. And that loved one being in need If you were to treat them with self-kindness, you would probably meet them with an attitude or a stance of what do you need? How can I help? Not how did you get into this mess? I can't believe you did this. And again, turning that attitude inward. So you're really accepting yourself and offering warmth and tenderness and encouragement and support. You're really opening yourself up to being moved by your pain. And of course, protecting yourself if you are suffering due to harm caused by another person. So allowing yourself to be moved by your own pain and that feeling of being moved can then allow and make space for more tenderness and warmth and support. Common humanity 
is about recognizing that even though our life experiences are different and we're unique beings, the process of pain and life difficulty is the same. So the specific details of our lives vary, but at the end of the day, we all mess up. We all feel angry with ourselves, disappointed, ashamed. And so remembering we're all imperfect and that imperfection unites us. It's a common thread in this tapestry of being human is so important because it helps us feel a part of the human experience of this community rather than feeling isolated that we're worse than other people, that we're the only ones who are suffering or have who have messed up, that no one else would have done this, I'm the worst. So really feeling connected in that shared sense of humanity. And mindfulness. So Kristen Neff has a few phrases that she uses like, we can't heal if we can't feel. And I think that really speaks to the importance of being present to the reality of what is. Sensations in our body, feelings that we feel, thoughts that run through our minds. She also says, like a clear still pool without ripples. Mindfulness mirrors what's occurring without distortion so that we can take a more objective perspective on ourselves and our lives. And I love this quote because so often I think there is this misconception that mindfulness is about being fake or cheesy or overly positive when that's not our reality. And that is so the opposite of what we're talking about. We're talking about not buying into the storyline. We're treating thoughts and thoughts as thoughts and feelings as feelings. Nothing more, nothing less. Thoughts and feelings are not facts and they are important thoughts and feelings to acknowledge and and experience and so this this stance of mindfulness also gives us enough space and equanimity to take wise action to more clearly discern and determine what is our most effective next step so if I am buying into these distortions and storylines I might choose an action that makes my life worse whereas whereas if I'm more able to see that I may be having certain thoughts and feelings that are legitimate yet are not necessarily factual representations of reality, it helps me take an action that may lead to healing rather than more suffering. So you can see how there is a tenderness yet also a ferocity here. And it reminds me a little bit of the paradox of love. That love allows us to be tender towards other people when they're hurting Yet love also has a mobilizing action. It's not just about this soft-hearted tenderness. It helps mobilize us to protect other people or empowering them to self-advocate when they've been harmed and when they've been harmed by other people. So both sides coexist and work together. Before we close with a brief self-compassion practice that can be used during times of self-criticism, I want to spend a few minutes debunking some additional myths of self-compassion that we know through research, as well as highlighting the benefits of self-compassion. So one common myth that I hear is that self-compassion is a weakness, when in fact self-compassion is a source of strength and resilience in challenging situations. And research shows that it is even more of a strength in challenging situations than self-esteem. It can be self-protective and supportive of the self. 
Another common myth is that self-compassion is selfish and self-focused when in fact research shows that self-compassion increases our emotional bandwidth to care for other people. Another myth is that self-compassion will result in us condoning bad behavior in ourselves when in actuality self-compassion, the research shows, helps us hold ourselves more accountable because it involves both constructive criticism and this discernment that we've been talking about in a way that leads us towards more effective action rather than withdrawing and isolating because we feel so overwhelmed by guilt and shame. So really this is about treating ourselves as inner allies rather than inner enemies. So with self-compassion, we can understand that we made a mistake and are hurt by it rather than thinking about how awful we are for having made that mistake. So it allows us to approach that mistake with that sense of inner allyship, the both and of accountability and also discernment and constructive criticism that can allow us to grow and change and do something differently the next time. Many people think that self-compassion interferes with motivation, that we'll become lazy if we're too self-compassionate, when in fact self-compassion is a motivator. It motivates through support and encouragement rather than fear and shame. And because it motivates through support and encouragement rather than fear and shame, it actually helps persistence after failure. And that is supported by the research. Many people think that self-compassion, as I said earlier, is about being fake and overly positive when in actuality self-compassion requires tuning into the reality of what is true right here, right now. Looking for the kernel of truth in our experience that we can authentically feel a sense of warmth towards, that we can have a sense of compassion and understanding toward. And that may not be the entirety of the experience. They may, there may just be one small aspect of the experience that we can feel self-compassion for and we can start there. Many people think that self-compassion is self-indulgent when in fact research shows that self-compassion chooses long-term well-being over short-term pleasure because it is aimed at the alleviation of suffering. And finally, there is a myth that self-compassion promotes self-pity, when in actuality self-compassion allows us to see our interconnectedness with other people without the exaggeration that often goes along with self-pity. So some other important aspects of research that I think are really important to highlight is that High self-compassion is associated with a number of benefits. So there is more self-confidence and motivation to improve after failure. We take greater personal responsibility for our mistakes. We tend to engage more readily in health-related behaviors. We have more strength to cope in the aftermath of challenging life circumstances. And we experience more caring personal relationships. So to me, those are all Hugely, hugely beneficial. We also know that self-compassion is linked to reductions in depression, anxiety, and shame, and that it increases happiness and life satisfaction. We also know that self-compassion is associated with fewer problems related 
to striving for self-esteem. So we know from research that often when we're striving for self-esteem, that that can create some narcissistic tendencies, a lot of social comparison, a lot of contingent self-worth that gets us away from acknowledging our inherent innate sense of self-worth and and being worthy just by being, and also emotional stability, excuse me, emotional instability. So we have fewer problems related to the consequences that come from striving for self-esteem, like narcissism, social comparison, contingent self-worth, and emotional instability. We also have healthier body image and less disordered eating behaviors when we have higher self-compassion. There's also a reduced risk of caregiver burnout. We also have better physical and immune functioning in part due to the fact that self-compassion increases our parasympathetic nervous system and reduces activation in our sympathetic nervous system. So in essence, it promotes that rest and digest, tend and befriend aspect of our nervous system and reduces that fight flight freeze fawn response of the sympathetic nervous system and really importantly self-compassion is an important mechanism of change in therapy so research shows that increased self-compassion is one pathway through which therapy works and I think that's really profound that through increasing self-compassion that is one reason that therapy often has a benefit Self-compassion also can help with post-traumatic growth and healing. So in the aftermath of trauma, cultivating self-compassion can result in or be associated with growing and healing from those experiences. So I, I hope that that leaves you with some sense of motivation and inspiration to really cultivate self-compassion in your life. So again, self-compassion is one of many practices, evidence-based practices, that can be extremely helpful as an antidote to self-criticism that can really serve us in responding effectively to self-criticism when it arises in our lives. And in episode 23, the next episode, we'll dive more deeply not only into additional compassion-based practices that can counteract self-criticism, but a variety of other healing modalities as well. But I did want to spend some time today honing in on self-compassion specifically because there is so much research supporting the benefits of this practice, not only with respect to self-criticism, but with respect to these other life domains that we've discussed. In addition to self-compassion being a very important antidote to self-criticism, I also think it's a really helpful stance with which we can approach this process of understanding self-criticism and its roots. Understanding how it has emerged in our life, how it is perpetuated in our life, and the various functions self-criticism serves not only in our lives, but in the lives of people who came before us so that we can more effectively loosen the grip that self-criticism has in our lives. If we are fighting against the self-criticism, judging the self-criticism, it creates an additional layer of suffering that we are then contending with. 
I want to wrap up our time together today with a brief self-compassion practice that integrates these three elements of self-compassion we've highlighted today. Mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness. And my hope is that you can engage in this practice even when you have a short amount of time, say three to five minutes, during a moment of self-criticism. So I'll invite you to begin by finding a comfortable position, either seated, standing, or lying down. And eyes can be open with a gentle, soft gaze or closed. And you can take a few moments to stretch, take a few deep breaths, look around your environment, anything that will help you land feel more connected to yourself in the present moment. And when you're ready, call to mind a recent moment of self-criticism. It helps to bring this practice to life if you can call to mind something recent that has happened for you. It could be a moment in which you called yourself a name, had a judgment towards yourself. Maybe you had an inner eye roll towards yourself or you actually rolled your eyes at yourself. It could be self-criticism you've experienced related to a health problem or a new habit you're trying to cultivate. Maybe some kind of relationship conflict or conversation that you had with someone that upon reflection you feel quite self-critical about. It could be a work stressor or a parenting struggle. Maybe an experience in which you felt hurt or rejected. Or perhaps an example of someone crossing a limit or boundary that you had set and you feeling critical of yourself for something you did or didn't do that you think contributed to that. Or perhaps you crossed someone else's limit or boundary and are feeling self-critical about your actions. As you call to mind this experience and really try to picture it in your mind, See if you can bring some mindful presence to this experience. So connecting with any emotions that arise as you call this to mind, any thoughts that come up, any sensations in your body, maybe even locating where those sensations occur. And if this is challenging for you, you could think about the midline of your body your throat, chest, and belly. Those are often areas where emotion gets stirred up in the form of tension or heat or vibration. And see if you can really allow these sensations, any discomfort, any emotions to be. You don't have to label them. It could be just a felt sense of what this experience was like. But rather than dismissing or denying or pushing away, letting it be, making room for it all.
And as you make space for this whole constellation of physical sensations, memories, emotions, thoughts, consider how this experience is an opportunity for connection. How this experience reflects your humanity. How it unites you with other human beings on the planet who have had similar moments of self-criticism, even if the circumstances of their life are different, even if they are different people. And for some people, this sense of shared humanity can be intensified by picturing other people around you that you know or that you don't know, or even calling to mind other people who you do know have struggled with self-criticism in the past. For other people, this sense of shared humanity can be cultivated through some kind of verbal interstatement like suffering is a part of living or me too or I know other people go through this too. I know I'm not alone in criticizing myself, even if it feels like I am. Or I know a lot of people are really hard on themselves. We're our own worst critics. Some sort of statement that helps connect you to this larger web of humanity in which we all experience self-criticism at times. And the last piece is self-kindness. So bringing a sense of love to this experience of self-criticism. The meditation teacher Joan Halifax refers to this as a strong back and soft front. And so to embody this sense of love and to bring this sense of love during this time of self-criticism, you can ask yourself, what quality of self-compassion do you need right now? If it's more of the yin side of self-compassion, the more accepting, soothing, understanding side, you could experiment with a statement like, it makes sense that I feel so critical. Or, this voice sounds like the voice of my mom. If the inner critic is recognizable as a voice of someone from your past who is very critical towards you. Or something like, may I care for myself in a way that I haven't been taught. So recognizing that your self-criticism is something that you've learned and that you haven't necessarily been taught how to bring compassion to yourself. Or you could consider a statement like, may I try to accept myself even with my flaws and mistakes. 
Or if you feel like you're more in need of the yang side of compassion, the more protective, providing, motivating side, you might experiment with this statement like, I will take steps that are needed to prevent myself from being further harmed. Or, may I believe that I am truly worth something different than the relationship I'm in. Or something like, may I have the clarity and courage to make a change. And if none of these examples resonate and you're struggling to identify what quality of self-compassion you most need or how to express that in the form of words, you could ask yourself, what might you say to a loved one or a client if you are a healer or in a helping profession? How would you be an ally or loving presence for them? Or you could flip it around and ask yourself, what would someone you trust say to you? Again, this could be someone you know, living or dead. It could be a spiritual figure, a historical figure. What might they say to you in this moment? You could also experience with something other than words. So perhaps the quality of self-compassion you need right now is a form of compassionate touch. So gently placing hands over your heart or wrapping yourself with a weighted blanket. Or some people find it really soothing to place one hand on the forehead and one at the back of the neck under the occipital ridge and giving a gentle squeeze. Or you could give yourself a gentle massage of the temples. Or maybe you could experiment with visualization Envisioning a peaceful place where you feel at ease, loved, surrounded by warmth. It could be a real place, a place in nature, a place that you've traveled to, a place in your home or backyard. Or it could be imaginary, imagining yourself being surrounded by a white light or a cloud. So it can take some time to arrive at the quality of self-compassion, a way of expressing that kindness towards yourself that really resonates. But over time, walking through these three steps of mindful presence, connection to common humanity, and self-kindness or, or love towards yourself can happen very quickly. So before we wrap up, I just want to summarize what we've covered today. I know it was a lot of rich ground. So we began by talking about ways in which we can understand the roots of our self-critical tendencies, considering the multitude of influences within each of us that both cultivate and perpetuate self-criticism. We also explored our personal relationship to criticism and the subtle and not so subtle ways in which it shows up in different domains of our lives through a self-reflection exercise, a bit of a self-inventory, self-assessment through writing and more of a mindfulness meditation. We also defined the components of self-compassion to be clear about what self-compassion really is so we can work towards cultivating it in our lives. And I shared some research and practical tips in 
in terms of ways in which self-compassion can be a useful antidote to self-criticism. And we ended with that self-compassion practice, which I hope is something that you return to as needed and are able to integrate in your own life in a practical and helpful way. So thank you so much for joining me. Again, a reminder that our next episode, episode 23, will outline more strategies for coping with, responding to inner criticism, including more compassion-based practices, but it will also weave in additional wisdom traditions from evidence-based evidence-based psychology and yoga and meditation and and other forms of ancient wisdom. So if the compassion-based practice today did not resonate with you for whatever reason, I invite you to tune in for that episode as well so that you can choose your own adventure and cherry pick the strategies that most resonate with you. So thank you so much. May you be well. May you find a lot of benefit from exploring the roots of self-compassion in your own life and translating these insights into action steps so you can cultivate more self-compassion in your life and respond to self-criticism with more effectiveness, skillfulness, and resilience. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.